Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you're listening to Close Read, the podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Jane Austen's persuasion and on which our intro is the same because a few people are scared of change. People really seem to like our intro. That is, see, you took something very different from what I took. Well, I had to be cynical about it just for the sake of like the, the, the theatrics bit, of the right? show. Yeah. Right. yeah. You know, well, I, I find that uh, it means a lot to be constant in one's thoughts and positions and determination. Once you've set your mind on something, to change is really a sign of uh, a lack of virtue. Then be persuaded against it is a, a moral failing in some people. Are you trying to um, like make a like? Are you trying right to tie now. things in here? I'm tying it in. I'm tying it in. Yeah. 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 Do yeah. you have any prose works to recommend of high moral virtue? <laughs> yes, but I'm not going to tell you which ones. <laughs> Keep, keep that close to the vest. Right. Yeah, that's right. Jane Austen wouldn't either. Come on. Close to the vest is an interesting phrase, by the way. Side note. Um, so we are here to discuss uh, the second half of volume one. Well, it's a little more than it's actually much more than half of volume one. But we're going to discuss to the end of volume one uh, at the end of the volume. Uh, nothing happens is what is how we kind of concluded. Uh, you know, in our pre pre-show conversations, it was decided that nothing happened of note. Um so except we'll for get to that. Anne we'll has feelings that she doesn't show. Except for Anne, right. that's right. Anne has feelings she doesn't show, and also there is a fall, yeah. uh, which is not the same thing as Anne having feelings that she doesn't show. Yeah. <laughs> um, we are going to discuss the stuff that doesn't happen in this section today, and then next week we will discuss Volume Two, Chapters One through Seven. Just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that. Uh, also, before we get into our uh, conversation proper, I just want to let people know about two webinars from the Cersei Institute. They're sponsoring this episode of Close Reads because they have two actually very interesting webinars coming up uh, that are starting this very week with led led by people that are friends of ours. So the first one, uh, which begins on January 9th, is called Plato's Dead End Dialogues with Mark Hayes. This uh, starts on the 9th. Uh, but it doesn't start until 6 p.m. So I believe today the episode dropped on the 9th. So you still have time to sign up. And then also, of course, you can you can always get the recording if you miss it. So uh, this, this webinar is going to contemplate questions such as, what is courage? What is temperance? Can virtue be taught? Things like that. Uh, Mark Hayes is an excellent teacher and a, and a really fun guy. So if you're interested in Plato uh, or his dialogues, and or his dialogues, then check that out. Uh, the other one is starting on January 11th, and it is called The Enduring Art of the Commonplace Book, The Ballast of the Self. And that is led by our good friends, Jonathan and Laura Council. Uh, it's going to explore the rich history of the Commonplace Book, its purpose, nature, practice, and various practical applications. So uh, those both sound amazing. You can go to circeinstitute.org slash events to learn how you can sign up for either of those. So again, that is... Plato's Dead End Dialogues, Dead End Dialogues with Mark Hayes, or The Enduring Art of the Commonplace with the Councils. Heidi, of those two, if you had to choose one of those two, which would you choose? Oh, man, that's so mean. Why would you do this to me? Because there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of, uh, there's a question here at the bottom or like a comment here at the bottom of the copy from Graham who sent it to me, who said, then you should ask Heidi which one she would choose. OMG, (laughs) Graham. Um, So you can blame Graham. Honestly, honestly, I would do the commonplace one um, because I'm fascinated by that. And I want, I would, I feel like that would be a peek inside some of, Potentially, right? Mm. We we could get a peek inside some of the great commonplace books from amazing historical figures. I know Thomas Jefferson That's kept true. a commonplace book. I'd love to just see the collected, um, I don't know, memorabilia of the mind that's left behind by some of the greatest thinkers um, of history mm. and uh, and and glean how I could follow in their footsteps. That just sounds fascinating to me. But the other one sounds gonna, really, really good. I'm <laughs> definitely going to email Mark Hayes and tell him how much you don't like him. I do like, not I have any interest. So Discord. Okay, so I'm really glad now that you were cynical at the top of the podcast so that everyone can see or hear <laughs> that this is just the way things go. <laughs> it's just the way today's going to be, I guess. It's been a wild day for me, and yeah. I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, hanging by a thread here. Really big problems. 
because he got 10 yes. boxes of books, yeah. which I feel like you have the best problems in the land. Um, no, that yeah. that was like, I didn't say that was a problem. It just adds when, when it's already oh, busy yeah. and I have to Fair get enough. them all unpacked and received into the inventory and figure yeah, all that stuff David out. David said, oh, guys, I've had a really difficult day. I had so many boxes of books arrive. There was a lot of stuff that happened in between that. It's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, Sean, which would you choose? You have oh, to pick the well, dead end dialogues now. Now I've got to pick the dead end dialogues. I it but really would have been a it really would have been a toss up. Uh, I like Mark Hayes a lot, and I like mm. Plato's dialogues. Uh, and and the the dialogues that don't, don't seem to go anywhere or accomplish the thing that maybe they set out to are some of the more fascinating ones anyway. Uh, but I also That's true. I love I do love uh, the art of the commonplace book. Uh, I own a couple of uh, famous people's commonplace books. In addition to you know, the originals, of keeping my own. No, they they print those things. No, you didn't say that. You just said I own their commonplace books. So. Well, if their family's looking for you, know what them, else is come, a virtue? Specificity. I visit people's houses and I David's steal their commonplace books, and then I wait for them to die and become famous. <laughs> okay. it's tough. The time travel part of that is hard, but. Um, you know, famous. Sometimes uh, I visit their houses. They, you know, they turn the houses into museums, and you can walk around. And yeah, it's true. Sticky fingers. Yeah. Uh, okay, so are really... you guys big comment? I'll go ahead. I was, well, I was just saying, are you guys big? Com- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, go ahead, David. You go. Yes. No, go. I no. was going to say the, that the, the, the dead end dialogues would be so useful if you are teaching angel literature and teaching Plato. That's true. Um, because they, it it really does behoove a thoughtful person to have a guide through some of those dialogues because they are um, on the surface a bit opaque. So I think it's mm. like a really, really valuable resource. I'd love to get and I'd love to even just sit down over a cup of coffee with Mark and and, you know, tell him tell him my thoughts on him and hear his and just enter into a conversation. Yeah. So, anyway. Sounds like another dead end dialogue. I know. Right? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> like to enter into a dead end dialogue. Set us up for that. Yeah. Anyway, David, it's like you were going to ask us a question. Know, a webinar called a dead end dialogue has the real potential to be one of those Russian nesting doll situations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A dead end dialogue within a dead end dialogue within a dead. I mean, you could really go far with that and it might not be on purpose, which would be less desirable. Which absolutely <laughs> just gives our but that won't be the case with Mark into some of the dead end dialogues. Cause that's exactly yeah, what exactly Socrates enough. is doing there. So that's, that's true. So again, CerseiInstitute.org slash events. Uh, if you would like to learn how to sign up for one of those. Okay. Let me just ask you this, though. I think this actually is relevant to some questions I have about this section in persuasion. What are your commonplacing habits? Like, are you big time commonplace keepers? Like, is you consistent? Like, you you have a real system that you've developed and you stick to it. Sean, you said that you you just said that you keep a commonplace book. What does that look like for you? Uh, it's a it's a mess. So, <laughs> so I have a really. I have a really great habit. I've been I've been keeping uh, commonplace books of some form for I don't know fifteen years, but uh, I have a really great and consistent habit of marking commonplace passages in my reading, uh, and then I have and then never and, writing them down, <laughs> and then I have a a, a spotty inconsistent <laughs> habit of writing them down, and I have a terrible system for organizing them. Uh, I wish I don't want to organize them digitally, but mm-hmm. I also, uh, other than just chronologically based on my reading, I don't have a great uh, way to compile them, and they're sort of scattered among uh, you know, a handful of notebooks. And uh, it's are you one of those people that's pretty- like? Your commonplace book has to be a particular kind of notebook. You write with a particular kind of writing instrument, like for your commonplace book. You know, I used to be, but I moved past that because it was a hindrance and not a not a help because it was, it was paralyzing me. And I, you know, I, oh, I can't write this one down because I don't have my special pen or this, you yeah. know, my special book is in a different place. Uh, so I've gotten past that, but I think I would like to continue with the messy system and then have like a, an even higher tier of the mother of all commonplace books that things will kind of graduate from my messy collection of commonplaces into that, you know, final divine compendium of, Common places. 
the divine compendium. Yeah, like the uh, Hall of Fame. You know, you could people yeah, get right. traded around from uh, team see, to team, and it's yeah, messy. Yeah, yeah. But then they, when they make it, they make it. The jersey yeah, yeah, gets yeah. retired, and they go into the book forever. Right. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. I kind of. It's interesting, Heidi. What about you? And there, there, I do have a reason for for uh, pursuing this line of conversation. I am more of a journaler. Like I keep like a chronological introspective record of thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I commonplace along the way, but in a, a pure, true commonplace book and like the, the highest sense of the word, right? the ideal, the form of a commonplace book would be organized <laughs> under subjects or headings. Like what you'd like write down your thoughts on justice here and on education here and love here or whatever. Um, and I don't do that. I just write, I just come across quotes I love and jot them down and my own thoughts yeah. and, and take notes on things. Um, but I definitely have a notebook that I always use, but I am still on the hunt for the perfect pen. And somehow I have, I feel in my heart that, that David, that you are going to find me the perfect pen. Cause you're like the curator of everything so i need you to i i really need that from well, you i don't have the, the perfect are, pen yet the pens are a complicated thing because everybody mm-hmm. has like different styles of pens so are you uh yeah, that's right are you a ballpoint are you a, a you know a gel are you uh you know fountain a, a, a fountain pen i've no i don't am, want a fountain pen. i've become a fountain pen lover i just <laughs> discovered one yeah. that's that's amazing okay we'll talk about the pens later yeah. the yeah. reason i bring this up <laughs> and we could talk about we should do a whole like series of episodes on common placing i love placing. this I idea think, man yeah. um but after only after people have done Jonathan and Laura's webinar. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Get them on the right foot. That would be the launching pad. CerseiInstitute.org slash events, of course. Um, <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because we were joking off the air about not anything happening. And then at the end of this section, of course, a particular young lady falls very nearly to her doom. And then and draws conclusions from the fallout of that and all that. So so obviously something does happen at the end. We're going to get to that scene before this episode is over. That's at the end of the section. But I was kind of laughing about how in a way I kept, I would sit down, I'd read three or four chapters, right? So I'd read 30 or 40 pages, whatever it is. And then I'd come back to it later and I'd be like, what happened in the last section? Did anything happen? <laughs> there was a lot of conversation, there was a lot of introspection, but did anything happen? And I started realizing like I was marking a lot of passages and some of them were, you know, I have a kind of a convoluted uh, mark, like marking system that I use in books. And so they were all different. There were all different kinds of categories. And I started thinking, this is a very commonplacey book. Like I found myself writing, marking a lot of things. Like I could see that being in my commonplace. And then I would mark a few form things here or there. But then I, but I was trying to figure out like, does anything happen? And kind of not a lot does happen, right? Like there's a lot of walking and conversations. Does less happen in this book than happens in other Jane Austen books, do you think? I do think that that's right. I think that this is a a book for introspective kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it does make me think of that famous negative review of Jane Austen that like has made the rounds on social media, like one star for Pride and Prejudice because, quote, it's just a bunch of people going to other people's houses, end quote. <laughs> and right. that's true. Like right. that and, uh, is. And yeah. I'm not saying a lot can't happen in right. other people's houses. Right. <laughs> this is true. Clearly. Right. Um, um, this is a book that's about in the interior, as, as Sean, I think so beautifully said it in the last episode it's about the interiority of Anne um and uh because she has such a vivid and sensitive inner life and I mean sensitive in the sense of like of um not easily offended but just she she registers things and she responds to them in her in inside and uh and she notices things she's always watching taking in information making judgments which is different from being judgmental um right, and right. uh and and allowing herself to kind of feel the full depth of it while still giving herself pep talks about wisdom and virtue and uh, prudence and all that along the way you know um and that is the that really is the story um although there are certain things that move that along from various stage to stage and one of them is 
coming back in contact with Captain Wentworth. And that's what happens in this section. And in a sense, that is the, you know, that's the conflict of the story. And so that's something really, really big that happens. Although, you know, it happens in a quiet way of just being at the same dinners as each other and having the same mutual friends and society and all that. Yeah. And as I was thinking too, as I finished rereading the section, uh, how well Austin structures the novel with that in mind, because, um, right. So some of our editions have the book divided into volumes. Some of them don't, but this was a two volume novel. And the convention of the time was to, divide novels into multiple volumes, two or three, and print and sell the first volume. And if it sold well, the others would go into print. And she very cleverly <laughs> ends volume one yeah. Yeah, with all right, the, the first few chapters. The thing that she's dreading and we're waiting for is Wentworth coming back into her life. And then she ends the chapter with him riding off or ends the volume with him riding off into the night to go care for some other woman. <laughs> uh, it's a really great, it is a really great kind of uh, cliffhanger to end the volume with. And interestingly, like she thinks a lot about it once they're actually in the same rooms and stuff. There's a lot of thinking about the fact that they're yeah. in the same rooms, yeah. but very little real interaction. Like there's right. that moment when they're when somebody else notices her <laughs> and she notices that he notices her. And like that's the biggest interaction they have. <laughs> and so it, it's like even the idea that she thinks that is going to happen or is worried about what's happened when they're in the same yeah. room. And then nothing happens when they're in the same room. But even like between them it is I just find it a fascinating approach to storytelling. Yeah. Because She's definitely not like trying to, I mean, other than at the end here, when he rides off and, you know, to help another woman. Um, she's not trying to get us to turn the pages in the traditional yeah. way. Even, you know, there were lots of storytelling, lots of stories, even at that time that were entertainments, as Greg Reed would have called them, that were about turning the pages. But if it's the case then that this is an internal novel, it's a novel for, what? how did you say it? For, for people who are, what did you say, Heidi? I think I said introspective people. Introspective. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, if if that's the case, if it's a novel for introspective people where not a lot of action takes place, where not a lot of plot is happening, what? How are we supposed to interpret or evaluate Anne's internal feelings? Like, if the book is so the book is so focused and driven by her, not only her observations, but also the way she feels about things. How does the book, is the book asking us to assess those feelings and those observations that she's making? Cause it's not asking us to obsess, obsess, uh, assess action. It's more like, and we are obsessing. That's like, <laughs> this, we're, is a Freudian so like flip. So, this actually works. Yeah, no, no, I, this we have an access. <laughs> the, the first, the second one was on purpose. Um, right. I just was thinking about like, are we supposed to read her and think, okay, this is a virtue. Her, these feelings that she's having are virtuous or lack virtue. There's this big moment for me. It's on page 95. It's around the time Harville is there. And it, there's this, she, there has been this thing with the, you know, the indirect discourse where you'll get the exact dialogue of the other character and yeah. then you won't get any dialogue from her perspective. Her actual point of view is kind of subsumed into the narrate the narration. It's just kind of described. And then it gets well, one of the few times it does actually allow her to speak, quote unquote, with quotation marks and all that, is her talking to herself. And it doesn't say she's thinking to herself. It says she says to herself, and yes, yes he has not perhaps a more sorrowing heart than I have. I cannot believe his prospects so blighted forever. I, uh, he is younger than I am, younger in feeling, if not in, if not in fact, younger as a man. He will rally again and be happy with another. And it's this sort of, I mean, it's a great passage. There's a lot of themes about the era that we could contemplate there. But there's this self-sympathy. She's feeling sorry for herself here. And I was starting, I was wondering, is this an example of where Austin is wanting us to hold her up as persecuted in a way and feel sorry for her? Or are we supposed to think, stop feeling sorry for yourself 
and get on with things. Well, I think that I think that Austin has a really nice light touch in these kinds of moments because uh, where then she saves Anne because the very next thing that Anne does is sort of think that very thought to herself. Stop hitting yourself. Uh, and she turns her attention to this other human who is suffering uh, and with no guile and with no self-interest, uh, she gives him good advice and encouragement. Uh, although, And then again, after she has recommended that he not wallow in his sorrow, uh, she chides herself as maybe being uh, inconsistent. At the very end of chapter 11, she says uh, that she fears, like many other great moralists and preachers, she had been eloquent on a point in which her own conduct would ill bear examination. Uh, so I think she allows us to see Anne allows us to see Anne seeing the the conflict or the tension uh, that she is giving advice to others that she in part is also giving to herself or knows she needs to take to heart herself. Hmm. I agree. And, and interestingly, she does get that. Go ahead, David. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. Just go. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Am I lagging? Do I have a, lag? a little bit, a, a little, little bit. Okay. like a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, to add to that, she's amused at it. There's always this like in in Austin's great heroines, there's always this ironic distance from the self, right? Like that the heroines are able to look at themselves, their own foibles and laugh at themselves. Elizabeth Bennett can do that. Um, right. And and. So can Anne. Emma gains the ability to do that over the course of, of the novel. Uh, that there's always this uh, um, holding up by Austen as a virtue, the ability to laugh at the self. And what that does for us as readers is it uh, it winks at us a little bit. And it keeps the character, especially with Anne, because she has such a vivid emotional life and because she's suffering a lot in the novel, we kind of need that from her so that she doesn't sink into what Austin would consider a negative form of a sensibility like Marianne, right? Anne's not sitting around feeling melodramatically mm. sorry for herself. She's able to look no. at her own emotions, acknowledge them, feel them deeply, but always stay a little bit amused, um, at herself. And, and that is very charming to us as readers, because then we feel like we are laughing with instead of laughing at. And, and that keeps our, us from, uh, from having a negative view of the deep emotions of, of this character. So, so you would say she's, we're not then supposed to judge her I think that we're supposed to see her on a journey of becoming. I think that there's a way that there's there's ways that Anne has to become self-aware. She is even in this section, she's still wrestling with whether or not she did the right thing um, by having a in. persuadable yeah, with with Wentworth by having a persuadable temper. Right. She has that wonderful passage um, on page. I'm just going to read it on page 114. Um, in, in our, in the, what, what, what is edition it? is this? It's David? right before the vintage, vintage classics that it's you, yeah. right before the end of the section. Yes, of it's the right before the end. Um, and it begins with, uh, Wentworth says, don't talk of it. Don't talk of it. He cried. Oh God, that I had not given way to her at the fatal moment. He's speaking about Louise's fall. Had I done as I ought, but so eager and so resolute, dear, sweet Louisa. And then you get some direct some free and direct discourse here from Anne. Anne wondered whether it ever occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinion as to the universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character, and whether it might not strike him that, like all other qualities of the mind, it should have its proportions and limits. She thought it could scarcely escape him to feel that a persuadable temper might sometimes be as much in favor of happiness as a very resolute character, end quote. So he knows that, she, or excuse me, she knows that he has judged her uh, as well as been hurt by her uh, for her 
persuadable temper, that she was persuaded by Lady Russell to end the engagement. And uh, he looks down on that. And she thinks that he likes that, that he likes, likes Louisa um, because <laughs> she's so resolute and eager and, um, and, and, oh, and, and expressive. And she is still kind of holding on to this idea of, but maybe I did the right thing or maybe I did the wrong thing, but it was for the right reasons. And I wish he would see that, right? Like she's, she is on a journey of reflection and self-discovery that I don't think we're meant to judge her harshly for like we are with Emma. We're supposed to look mm. at Emma and mm. find her yeah. wanting. And uh, and she has a lack of virtue. Her tra- Emma's trajectory of growth is a lack of uh, the virtues that Austin holds dear to a growth in those things and a true repentance. For And it's more like a uh, gradual self-knowledge that um, – but – she still has, she's still held up as an ideal. She doesn't have the youthfulness of, of an Emma or someone like that. I don't, mm-hmm. right. Emma's supposed to be much younger, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so, Anne has ex- so Anne is what, eight years on her? And yeah. Anne's an old woman at 29. I mean, <laughs> like she's had, she, she has had more experiences. She's, she has acquired certain virtues and, you know, gone through things that, Gave her scars, so to speak. (laughs) But so I really like that at the end, right after this section is when she gets that little moment where the the other man notices her and then Wentworth notices. Like that comes right after she's kind of feeling sorry for herself, which is an interesting juxtaposition by Austin to to kind of being on her side as the reader to kind of feel like we're all getting a little bit, a little victory you know <laughs> a little win a little like catharsis a little see told you so type of i don't know i don't know exactly how to describe it but it's like a little like a little uh hang of i don't know, mm-hmm. you know i wonder though if it isn't if that doesn't invite some questioning of Anne and david i had as i read this section a question similar to yours because it does seem like Anne. But she's very interior and she has an active mind. And so she's thinking a lot and drawing a lot of conclusions. And I don't think she's being hasty, but I think there are plenty of times when she's also not entirely right or correct in her conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. She will, we will find, spoiler alert, that uh, she has not entirely interpreted Wentworth's behavior correctly towards uh, the Musgrove ladies or even toward herself, right? She always, she always interprets his behavior toward her as an attempt to uh, distance himself from her and be apart from her because he finds her odious. <laughs> uh, he interprets uh, his, or she hears his reported comment that he finds Anne much changed and she immediately takes the harshest read of that possible. Oh, he thinks that I'm hideous now after uh, seven years. Yeah. Uh, and then she even, one of the questions that she asks herself, or one of the things she tells herself, I think this is back in chapter seven, is she's she's thinking, and, and I kind of wanted to talk about this more generally, the the fact that Anne and Wentworth are both still unmarried and unattached and the reasons that they might have for being so. Uh, but she's she thinks at one point uh, about the fact that Wentworth, who she turned away because he didn't have money <laughs> or prospects, basically, uh, she wonders why he never, why he didn't come back the moment he had money. And she basically concludes it's because he he made up his mind about her and wants nothing more to do with her. Uh, she says, had he wished ever to see her again, he need not have waited till this time. He would have done what she could not, but believe that in his place, she should have done long ago when events had been early, giving him the independence, which alone had been wanting. Right? She thinks to herself, if it were me, the moment I won my first captured my first prize and got some money, I would be back at Anne's doorstep. And the fact that he wasn't 
means he must you know, detest me now. Uh, and that seems like a, a harsh and final conclusion, or maybe not harsh, uh, but a hasty and final conclusion to draw on Anne's part. You do some interesting psychological analysis of that, though. Like, yeah. what does that actually mean that she's feeling about her own decision and her own sure? Well, and, and about his, making... like, what? Why didn't he? Or we don't get to see that interiority of Wentworth, but we can certainly right. speculate. And he will maybe he will reveal things later in the novel. But, but one of the things that's interesting is even the interior the interiority that we do get of Anne is limited. Mm-hmm. Like we're not getting. We're not getting, she's not assessing all of the decisions that she made in the past and all right. that kind of stuff. Like there's a lot yeah, of, we're left with a lot of questions know, about why she did what she did. We don't ever hear her thinking about why she turned down Charles Musgrove, for instance. Right. Right. She's been proposed to since. Right. Which and we, by somebody who you know, had more going for him, at least, you know, monetarily than, than uh, old Corporal Wentworth or whatever he was. Right. Midshipman Wentworth. Right. She part of part of I guess the process of the book or the process of her becoming and self aware is is doing an a self analysis on the choices that she made. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, go ahead. Hey, I'm curious what you guys think of Wentworth's opinion of Anne's looks. I find his that whole section about how he finds her looks so altered like super painful as a girl <laughs> like that's like i <laughs> i but much like austin makes much of the fact that Anne's bloom has faded that she's a very she's a pretty girl and uh after the breakup like she she kind of she faded and her beauty faded and that and he when he sees her again he notices that and so in our book, David, it's on page 59. Can we look at this passage? Is that mm-hmm. okay? Am I take? I don't want to take over the podcast yeah. because you're the host, but I really want to know your thoughts on this. You know, I do have this marked. Yeah. So. Okay. What's the, sorry, what's the chapter it's here? It's uh, chapter seven. Sean, just get with the program here. I know. Well, I mean, literally, uh, get, literally get several, with the program. <laughs> <laughs> it's several pages in, so... Um, it's closer to the end of seven. It's closer gonna, to eight than it is at the beginning yeah, of seven. You're going to turn the page like four or five times, um, uh-huh, and uh-huh. it the paragraph. Begins What's the beginning of the paragraph? Altered beyond his knowledge. In quotes. And fully submitted in silent deep mortification. Alan. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah my book has it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your book um, has that. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> So should I read this out loud and then we hear your guys' thoughts? Okay. She says, You can read it quietly if you want. We could just have Um, silence for a while. That would be so weird. Altered beyond his knowledge. I'm reading it in my head at the same time. Anne fully submitted in silent, deep mortification. Same, same, by the way, if this were me. This is like super painful for me. All right. I'm going to go back into the book and not come out again. All right. Doubtless it was so. And she could take no revenge for he was not altered or not for the worse. She had already acknowledged it to herself, and she could not think differently, let him think of her as he would. No, the years which had destroyed her youth and bloom had only given him a more glowing, manly, open look, in no respect lessening his personal advantages. She had seen the same Frederick Wentworth. So altered that he should not have known her again? These were words which could not but dwell with her. Yet she soon began to rejoice that she had heard them. They were of sobering tendency. They allayed agitation. They composed and consequently must make her happier. Frederick Wentworth had used such words or something like them, but without an idea that they would be carried round to her. He had thought her wretchedly altered and in the first moment of appeal had spoken as he felt. He had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill deserted and disappointed him and worse she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so which his own decided confident temper could not endure she had given him up to oblige others it had been the effect of over persuasion it had been weakness and timidity he had been most warmly attached to her and had never seen a woman since whom he thought her equal but except from some natural sensation of curiosity he had no desire of meeting her again her power with him was gone forever. That's so. Is this is and 
Are you reading this as a glimpse into his inner life here? And is this free and direct discourse of Frederick Wentworth? This is the story he's telling himself. So this is the question. Right. To me, like that, is this, is this the narrator giving us things that we are supposed to trust? Or is this Anne emoting and being probably it being true to some degree and then her over-exaggerating to, to, to another degree. So I think that, I, I don't know. Personally, well, Sean just made a face. So Sean's, <laughs> Sean's going to finish my sentence. Personally, uh, personally Sean thinks. <laughs> well, I think this is such a complicated passage. It's not easy to parse, but I think it's more likely that it's Anne, especially because then in the final paragraphs of this chapter, it switches against all reason or likelihood uh, to Wentworth's point of view. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. we, we jump across space and time uh, to be present with Wentworth for a separate conversation, uh, where then he too says one thing out outwardly while he intimates or intends inwardly a different thing. Uh, and so I think... I think it's very clever on the narrator's part or on Austin's part, but I don't think that this is meant to be taken objectively. I don't think it's untrue, but I think uh, what what we just heard was definitely from Anne's point of view, and particularly yeah. because, uh, <clears throat> and I'm not trying to be an obtuse male, but particularly because she... You just are one. I know. I'm not trying to be. It's effortless. <laughs> Though, I mean, I don't think Wentworth meant it as a compliment and reads so much negativity into it that isn't explicit, altered beyond recognition or beyond his knowledge. It could mean so many things. Uh, and she takes it to mean my, my, my beauty is wrecked. Uh, I'm a 27 year old harpy now. And. <laughs> That is exactly uh, how I would take it. But my my here's my question though. My my only pushback against that interpretation is the is the sentence he had been most warmly attached to her and had never seen a woman since whom he thought her equal. That doesn't seem like Anne. Well, that's that's the transition point. I, I took so, I take that as her remembering something he had said to her. Yeah, that's fair. So like that, that, that he, he, once upon a time, he had told me that he had never seen anybody as beautiful as me. And sense is such, is like a now word, right? And you might be right. I think, but I just find it ambiguous. This is about a page. This is about a page and a half after the passage I was referring to earlier, where she's thinking about why, uh, why he is still single. Mm -hmm. And also why he did not return to ask for her hand again after he had money. And I think that this is just the conclusion that Anne is drawing. Uh, he's still unmarried because he has not found a woman to rival his affection uh, and felt an affection for her that rivaled his affection for me. But I also have blown it with him. And uh, that's where we are. The okay. other part of the, the other part of the point of view that complicates things is that it's not the narrator that tells us what he said. It's Henrietta telling Anne yeah, what he that's said. Right. Mm-hmm. And so can yeah. we trust Henrietta right. to have told the truth? We so do have multiple layers if, of, yeah, of yeah. narration. Well, and, and we additionally, have Russian nesting dolls. Exactly. Yeah. And additionally, <laughs> Anne here is judging herself for her past conduct. Right? And so one of the things that's big in Austin is that people flourish when they are loved, right? There are plenty of awful male characters that she comes right out and says, if he had been married to a good woman, he would have been a better man. Yeah, right? Someone and, to shoot him every day of his life. Yes, right. Someone there to like shoot him every Charles day of his life. Charles Musgrove. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Like <laughs> right. Charles Musgrove. Or I think Henry Crawford in Mansfield Park is another uh, great example where the narrator right, comes right out and says it. Um, if he had married Fanny, he would have been a, a decent guy. Maybe she could have saved him. Well, and then uh, look at what happens to Darcy when yeah, right. That's he actually right. allows Elizabeth to love him. And and the same with women that that uh, they can in fact 
I mean, as this isn't even exclusive to humans, but things that are loved become lovelier. Uh, and she is here uh, subjecting herself to moral blame. And I think partly convincing herself that she does not deserve to be, does not deserve his affection after what she did to him. Uh, and therefore it makes it even easier for her to understand his comment as referring to a great diminishment in her loveliness. And maybe there, there has been one partly because she thinks in this way or has continually harbored this thought that she's so, guilty of something towards him uh, and that he's partly in the right for, for not, for no longer desiring her. So then is her perspective that, uh, she has, she, that Wentworth is unchanged. She had seen the same Wentworth. It says, is, is that, do you think supposed to be totally just accurate? Like, is this guy just George Clooney? Like he just, the, the older he gets, the better looking he gets, or is it supposed to be, you know, maybe, maybe there's something deeper psychological going on there. Like either it's a sign of her continued affection for him or she's even has a sense of guilt about it, or she's just like, what have I done? You know, yeah, well, I, I think, uh, or, think or, about or if you don't mind me finishing this, like, or she is feeling insecure about herself and views him like that leads her to view yeah, him in a way yeah, that is yeah. perhaps unrealistic. And I think there's a trick of memory and time here too. Right? think about what has been going on inside of them for the past seven or eight years. And, uh, he was wronged by her and felt wronged by her. And so his image of her is affected by that for nearly a decade. Uh, she has let him go, this man that she had great love for, uh, not based on her own judgment. And so she has, she never had the, came to the emotional place of not loving him when she put him off. Uh, and so that, continually beloved image of Wentworth has endured for seven or eight years in her memory. While in his memory, uh, either an idealized Anne <laughs> that he does not think he, he will ever attain again has been enduring or some demonized version who has wronged him out of cruel malice or some mixture of the two. Uh, and they've just been dwelling on those images uh, and, ideas all this time before coming back into the presence of the the real thing. Yeah, I think that's right. We do have some outside validation from other characters that he's kind of dreamy though, right? Like yeah, all the hey. girls are in love with him. He's he's, that's he's true. good in like he he shines in society in a way and doesn't, right? She's well, quiet and faded and overlooked. Yeah. And he is the center of attention and he's making jokes and he's flattering. Like, but he's he's not he's being like fake. He's he's yeah, like right. Owen Hill. Like he's he's like a charm. That's <laughs> that's my friend's husband. Um that he's like a charming does, does Owen listen to this? Uh no, but I'm gonna tell him I mentioned him. Um we're just talking <laughs> just about just want this a new story. listener. Yeah. yeah. Um like he's charming. He's good in a group. Like and and he he shines where Anne fades, and she feels like that diminishes her appeal. Um and but, but what this is Yeah, go ahead. Well, this is just so fascinating because the reason at the end of this section, he's he's talking about the kind of woman he wants, right? Um he's and you I think you kinda of have to Actually, you kind of have to read him being a little tongue-in-cheek here, honestly. Um, but he says, um, this is the woman I want, said he, uh, said he, something a little inferior. I shall, of course, put up with, but it must not be much. And I'm just kind of, he says more, but he concludes it by saying something a little inferior I shall not put up with. But the irony of that is she let him go. She allowed herself to be persuaded to let him go because of his inferiority. And now he's making these comments about other people's inferiority. And so there's like a dramatic irony in that, but I also don't know how, how much we're supposed to take him mm -hmm. as actually caring about that. Or is he making a point? Like, is he, has he, has he pulled himself up by his bootstraps to use the American version of it and made something of himself? And now he can look down on other people as inferior or is he being tongue in cheek because that was how he was sort of treated. 
or he was, or she, he, she allowed herself to treat him in that way as <laughs> if he was inferior. Yeah. It's, I mean, Austin has a big task here and in, in, in this part of the novel because she has to tell us why a young woman of the caliber of Anne Elliot would be in love with this guy over many years when mm-hmm. she is when she is rich, when she is attractive, uh, when uh, she's had multiple offers that she's turned down since then and that she hasn't loved, right? Um, So we have to know why somebody of the caliber of Anne Elliot would be in love with this guy, but we have to, as the readers, not know what the heck is going on with him. And, Mm. and, um, yeah, and, and look at him with esteem and not dismiss him like we do Wickham, right? Like he's not Wickham. He's not a jerk. Right. But we right, right, have right, right. to be question it, we have to be wondering whether he is or not. She has a massive literary job in front of her in this section. She also has her whole canon like preceding her, which right. all yeah. these other heroes and and heroines that are informing how people read. And have like the expectations they have for the for what he's going to be like. Go ahead. Right? Is he just a shallow Mr. Willoughby? Right? Or and, yeah. and and Anne's wasting her time, and it's time for her to move on, and that's what he's here for, right? Or is he worth it? Um, is he the man who is worthy of Anne Elliot? And if so, how does she portray him then? Like, how does she hmm. get that in? Like, this is. To your point that you brought up last time, David, I this is like um, one of those novels that if you're a writer, you're just kind of marveling page after page. Like, how is she doing this? Like, how is there enough of a question mark in our minds about about Wentworth? And yet at the same time, we're rooting for him because we're rooting for Anne. But we honestly don't know whether what's going to happen. Right. Even that section, even that section we just read when it's unclear whether we're in the head of Anne's interpretations or we're actually in the head of, of Captain Wentworth. And this is what he really thinks about Anne. It's a bit ambiguous. So that's, I mean, masterful job on, on Austin's part of raising the questions you're raising without making us dismiss him as a shallow jerk. But I think that's why this section like has to be like, I don't think it's this totally reliable narrator because I think it has to introduce all these all right. these different perspectives on him to create that sort of tension Agreed. and that drama and the questions for us. I agree. Do you think so? I was thinking about this a lot when reading this section. And before we end, we gotta talk about the we, we gotta talk about the fall. Uh does does so there are a lot of subordinate clauses in this book. <laughs> yes, this is true. And do you think that she is trying to obfuscate ideas and like, do you think she's trying to bury moments in subordinate clauses on purpose to create uh, a sort of uh, tension or series or, or questions for us as a reader? Can you I started, find an example for us to Lord, yes, I can. At. Every paragraph in the book. Uh, well, I started reading paragraphs without like, and skipping long sections of them oh, interesting. to see what it does. And I don't like, let's do this another time. Cause I don't think we have, I don't think we really have enough time to really mm-hmm. get into this. Um, Cause we, you have what, 10 minutes. Yeah. Right about that. 15. So let's, let's do this another time. What I would, I would encourage readers to do it on their own too. Like there's long sentences in this book, downright Faulknerian sentences in this book, which they're very enjoyable. Or maybe Faulkner is Austinian. That's fine. That's yeah, fine. That's right. We can do that. Yeah. But the, anyway, the, I know creating creating the argument there would have been more difficult than what I was trying to say. Uh, she she writes these long sentences in Austinian form. Uh, <laughs> um, and in a way, I'm trying to figure out, like, is that just her being eloquent in the way that they were in that era? Or is she trying to bury something within these long sentences? So I started reading it and I started taking out a lot of the subordinate stuff and just kind of sticking, trying to read them with the most direct parts of the sentences. And it's a very interesting experience. I encourage you to do that. We should look at that next time. But I think that's worth thinking about. Is she trying to hide drama? Is she trying to bury moments in syntax to complicate our experience of it as readers? There is a point at which, like, yeah, people at that era, they wrote differently. They wrote it. Eloquence meant something different than it did, it does in 1995 or 
1960 or whatever, even 1899. Um, so I'm curious what you guys think of that. But like for now, I guess I'll just float that out there and we can talk about that in the future. Yeah, it's worth um, looking at as we read the next section. Let's talk about the ending. Let's talk about the fall. Let's talk about the setup for the rest of the novel. Let's talk about something finally happening. Um, I'm, I just, just for the record, I'm being facetious. Lots happens in this book <laughs> in the conversations, <laughs> but some, but like actual, you know, like it's, it's almost like a, uh, it's almost someone falling on the moor. It's almost like a, like a gothic novel. <laughs> I mean, it's not a moor, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys want to talk about with the fall? Sean, what do you want to, what do you want to say about the fall? We have eight minutes. Uh, well, you know, I can't help but No, I, I gotta, let me back up. Lucy's a nice girl. Okay. Uh, but I think Austin does a great job of just rolling a whole bunch into this scene. Some, a lot of which is still to be unpacked later. Uh, but one of the things that it accomplishes right away, even in the midst of all of the the fear and worry over Lucy's health, uh, is that it really effectively portrays her as uh, immature. That uh, even though Anne is still going on to think and and Wentworth's future behavior will still make her think for a while, that Lucy is a legitimate love interest or rival. Uh, her behavior, the very thing that winds up getting her injured, uh, is just childish and reveals her to be someone that uh, Wentworth couldn't possibly be that taken with. I don't know if you think that that's fair or right, or that that's even something we're supposed to be noticing. I think that is something we're supposed to be noticing because I noticed you called her Lucy, but her name is Louisa. But the reason, I, the reason I point that out is not to correct you because that's splitting hairs, but because I think you're probably subconsciously associating yeah, I don't her think with you Lucy. should make a joke about splitting right. hairs when Lucy someone Steel, falls yeah, on yeah, With Lucy yeah, Steele, Steel. right? From, but I do um, feel a little bit bad because... Because she is no Lucy Steele. Louisa, that's what I'm about me. to say. Like that's what I'm about yeah. to say. She's not the same, and I think that that is one of the subtle brilliances of persuasion, and why characters like Louisa. Oh, yeah. you can't. This you can't hate her. Yes, like her. She is not bad. Like in some of Austen's early novels, it's very easy to put to put characters in categories. Right? Um, they're more. They're some of the characters are caricatures. And Lucy yeah. Steele is one of them. Uh, however, Louisa Musgrove is a good-natured, pretty, simple, like she will be a good wife to somebody, right? Yeah. She's a good person. She's not malicious. She's not out to get Anne. She's not a vamp trying to like lure Wentworth away and <laughs> and take advantage of, of him and, and use her friendship with Anne to get like, like Lucy Steele, right. right? Like Lucy Steele. Yes. But – she still is the question that we have is with with this mature novel is who is worthy of whom, right? And we see yeah. a closeness developing here between Wentworth and Louisa, both extroverted, good-natured people. And then we see a an affinity forming between Benwick and Anne, right? And they are both the introverted, kind of introspective, more intellectual, thoughtful readers, more observers, and rather than participants. And and yeah. th those two apparent couplings uh are our doubles that are brought forward to us to say okay so should Wentworth be with somebody more like Louisa should Anne be mm. with somebody more like Ben by Benwick they're both good people maybe this will work right and so Austin's yeah. kind of playing with that and asking us as readers mm. are we really rooting for Anne and Wentworth and if so why because right. there's not just yeah. bad guys and good guys in this book. Like we're we're at a more mature out of uh inv we're, yeah. we're invited to a more mature reflection on compatibility here. Do you think that like that's interesting, especially if you think about Pride and Prejudice. Right. Where Elizabeth and Darcy, although they there's there's a lot of pride and prejudice there in the in them, mm -hmm. you kind of sort of pretty quickly root for them to be together and to get over their like 
the way that they antagonize one another and all that kind of stuff. I feel like she's setting you up to to feel that way. But you have there you meet them at the beginning. And here you there's this long history that we're not privy to except through jot, you know, a little like bits of memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a way that's like the the nature of memory and the way memories change how we think about people mm-hmm. and the way over time we begin to we begin to we hold on to certain things and that can like either that can either uh improve or harm the way we think about people because we if they're not what we how we've remembered them over time then that's going to impact the way you interact with them and the way you think about them now that's why i don't necessarily trust his perspective on her now because has he had a sort of had a certain amount of prejudice towards her for the way she treated him and then thought about her for a long time as a 21 year old and now here she is as a 27 year old or 29 year old and yeah. so the the way memory works on us mm-hmm. is complex and that makes those doubles even more important because the the onset of the relationships happens like at different times in those different relationships right so they have a depth of relationship that is in try that is attempting to in, come up through old soil. I don't know how to what exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> There's a plant that was planted deep that's trying to grow, as opposed yeah. to something that's just shallow. And so the shallow versus the depth, and I don't mean shallow necessarily in a negative sense, just not a lot of root there. Is I don't mean they're shallow people. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, those that then becomes those contrasts become a compelling part of like the drama. And getting us towards the end of the book. I just have one more thing to add to that because I really like what you're saying, David. And I think that you said something in our last podcast that opened up the book even more to me. And I was able to see even more this this read. Um, You said, this is a book that teaches us how to read. I love that. A lot. I think that that's true. I think Austin does that, teaches us how to read. This is, she's Mm. a reason why many like thoughtful, interested, beginning readers first pick up Austin, right? They read Jane Austen first. Um, but also why the greatest novelists <laughs> ever have always loved her. Because, yes, yeah. because she teaches uh, she teaches writers how to write. She teaches readers how to read. And, uh, and one of the ways that she does that in this book is I think we always need to keep in mind the title of the book. This is a book about persuasion. And overtly, it's about how Anne Elliot was persu- a very strong character with a sweet spirit and a strong mind. That's that's stated in the book. Um, she's was persuaded away from something that would have made her happy. And now now she's reckoning. Now, now this is her reckoning, right? And uh, but but there's multiple layers of persuasion everywhere on every page coming uh, from uh, from our narrator who's persuading us to think certain ways uh, through the free indirect discourse, we get uh, an entrance into the heads of of our characters. Um, And so we're persuaded to make a judgment as readers uh, through that. Um, And sometimes it's ambiguous, like that passage we read when we're not sure whether this is we're in the head of Anne or in the head of Wentworth, right? And it matters a lot, actually. Like that, who is thinking that? has a huge impact on our interpretation of the book. So we're being persuaded all the time. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and there's different arguments on one side, right? Like is Anne going to be happier with somebody like Benwick after all, or does she belong with Wentworth? Right. Um, and, and these are like, there's always some attempt to persuade a reader to make a judgment on every page. And then those judgments are then subverted or reinterpreted throughout the novel. Hmm. Elliot's Mr. Elliot's been introduced now, right? Yes. Yeah, just but barely. Yep, just barely. Right. But it says admiration for Anne, which gets Wentworth back up. That's right. That's right. And then everybody's freaking out about how he's like the new. All the the young women are freaking out about how he's going to be the new heir. Hmm. Um, Sean, you mentioned last week that you said this is a book that asks what it means to be a gentleman. In one sentence, do you have any further thoughts about what this book has to say about a gentleman after volume one? And you can have, have some semicolons in that sentence if you want, or some subordinate clauses. <clears throat> no, I have a Heming, a Hemingway sentence, not a not an Austin sentence. I, I can do Actually, a Hemingway sentence because I won the punt on this. 
Uh, I so think next time. Yeah, I think that this section so much is in flux, and so many judgments have yet to be made. Uh, I think I think there's more to say about that next time. Although there are some perceptions, like Anne, Anne thinks uh, at a few junctures. Uh, oh well, when the when the Musgrove ladies, when the Miss Musgroves are paying their attentions to Wentworth, and uh, the younger of them also has their cousin, the curate, uh, who she has had an attachment to previously. And Anne thinks, I wish I could just tell all these people how they're behaving in a way that is uh, maybe untoward and is causing harm. Uh, and I wish that they could all just see it and I could make it known to them in some way that I'm incapable of doing without just, you know, saying So stuff. what you're saying is Anne is the real gentleman here. <laughs> Anne, is, Anne is one of them. Uh, but, but no, really what I'm saying is uh, places in this section are concerned with those kinds of questions, but that it really comes to fruit more later on. Got it, got it. Heidi, do you have any final thoughts? I know you need to go. No, I have no final. I mean, I have a million final thoughts, but not one that stands out particularly. Luckily, How about, yeah. <laughs> Can I can I say something uh, yes. as a, by way of a, a different final I give final you thought, my I bequeath to ah, you my final thoughts. Space. Thank you. <laughs> She's got to go. <laughs> uh, Austin has also cleverly towards the end of this section built up some new tension and anticipation and anticipation uh, by introducing not only Mister Elliot but reminding us of another character that we haven't actually spent a lot of time with, and that's Lady Russell. The so. Uh, Orson Welles is in the movie The Third Man, which I'm, I have my interests are broader than Graham Greene, but you know it's <laughs> yeah. Don't get a, me started on The Third Man. <laughs> but uh, you know, in addition to being a Graham Greene adaptation, it's one of the great uh, noir movies ever made, maybe. But uh, it's the second Orson best movie Welles, ever made. Orson Welles plays uh, this character Harry Lyme, who doesn't r- appear until halfway through the film, but he's talked about throughout Mm. from the opening moments of the movie. And uh, in an interview, Wells said, this is the dream role to be the character that everyone talks about and everyone is looking forward to meeting, uh, but no one sees until, you know, the third act. Uh, And Austin has sort of made Lady Russell into this kind of character, not because Lady Russell is particularly interesting on her own, uh, but we're continually reminded of, the fact that Lady Russell is the reason these two didn't get together. And so she, just when all this is happening uh, and making us forget that Lady Russell even exists, uh, she foreshadows her return and even has Anne dread ever seeing Lady Russell and Wentworth in the same room together, uh, which is a perfect way to leave us also uh, hanging at the end of volume one, waiting for this inevitable uh, reunion between all of these parties. For Lady Russell to step out of the shadows on a, right. on a dark Vienna street. Yep. I might be confusing talking, my stories, but talking about cuckoo clocks, it's crazy. Seriously, what I'm, that movie is incredible. So Heidi, have you seen The Third Man? I've never seen it. I really hope to know what he would ask me that, but I promise We're watching it next month. We're watching it. <laughs> okay, I will. I'll watch it with you. That's I have it on do. Blu-ray. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. It, I think it literally might be a perfect movie. It's, yeah. He just did a chef kiss. I believe that was yeah. what that was. Yeah, sorry. That's right. It was uh, silent, all right, silent Heidi. Kiss. Thank you for your time. I know you got to go. So, You're very uh, Don't forget him. <laughs> <laughs> she's deigned to spend an hour with us um we w- she will be deigning to spend another hour with us like next every week, week when we discuss <laughs> yeah exactly when we discuss the first seven chapters of volume two uh and we are going to uh we're gonna get the fallout of the um the the, the fall <laughs> um so uh don't forget that you can go to sourceinstitute.org slash events if you would like to check out either the the uh, the webinar on the Plato's Dialogues, the dead-end Plato's Dialogues with Marques, or the commonplace, the art of commonplacing webinar with Jonathan and Laura Council. Both of those will be really great, so check those out. All right, that's all. Don't forget you can uh, check out the, the bonus Till We Have Faces episodes. We're going to do our Q&A 
here soon on that. That's going to be uh, that's going to be interesting because the questions are combative and uh, yeah. on Heidi's side. Um, <laughs> so Sean and I will come uh, guns blade. I mean, we'll come ready for uh, civil conversation. Side, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would take Heidi's side, but like, what's the point of a podcast where? <laughs> Where, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's the point of if we, how do we have a conversation that's got any kind of uh, drama to it, and how do I maintain the bit if I take Heidi's side? So, no, um, that's right, it's a bit. Yeah, um, just a bit. Uh, all right, well, for Sean Johnson <laughs> and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.